I remember as a teenager sitting at the kitchen table with my father, listening to the weatherman broadcasting a tornado warning. And all of a sudden, hail began to come through the window, the screen, and everything. My dad and I jumped up and scrambled around like chickens with our heads cut off, trying to get under the floor. Our house is just a slab house, but they had these little crawl places. Had to lift up the little door to get under that that area. If you're an Okie, you fully understand exactly what I just said. Of course, by the time we got the crawl space open, the storm was over. Most of us don't handle storms and troubles very well. That's why the Psalter speaks to our hearts in a very special way with regard to, especially Psalm 46, which we're going to look at this morning, a song of faith in troubled times. I'd like to read it for you just to set in our minds these great words of this hymn. Hymns have a way of reaching in, grabbing us, waking us up, shaking us, speaking to us, like the one we just sang. What a great hymn. And this is one of those hymns. This is one of those, if you've ever been to the hospital and have I ever come to visit you, I read this to you. This is a go-to hymn. Psalm 46. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah, set to Almoth, a psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake in its swelling pride. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she will not be moved. And God will help her when morning comes. The nations made an uproar, and the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He he breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. As I mentioned, Psalm 46 is one of those go-to hymns uh, in times of trouble and difficulty. Uh, I trust that uh, after today it will it'll be on your top 50 hit list. One of the unique things about this psalm is it directs us to abandon our human attempts at self-sufficiency and to trust in the Lord's sufficiency as our refuge in time of trouble. Uh, 
Among other things, it tells us uh, to be still, uh, to trustingly turn to the Lord, to positively respond to His will, to reflect on His ability, and to place all of our expectation on Him. So let's look at this psalm together. I would be remiss if I passed over the superscription, so let's look at that. You'll notice these little notations that most of the psalms have them. Uh, the chief musician, the psalm, the sons of Korah, the psalm of Almoth, Selah. Uh, these are little liturgical devices. They're musical notations. Much like in our hymn book, we have little, little, little numbers and symbols and stuff like that. And we never read those. We never look at those. But the people that are charged the music now, that, that's very important to them. But to us, it's not that important. But this is a, it's a hymn book. So you would expect to see those things in there. And that's exactly what they are. Uh, psalm without title is like a picture without a frame. In fact, they call these psalms orphan psalms because they don't have a title. You don't really have to read them when you read through the psalms. <clears throat> Although the Hebrew Bible counts them as verse 1. So apparently the Hebrews thought that was part of the part of the psalm. <clears throat> this particular psalm gives, first of all, a heads up to the chief musician or the song leader, and it indicates that this was to be accompanied by instrumental music. This, this word of psalm speaks of twanging and has to do with an orchestra probably at the temple worship. It's interesting, if you look back in Psalm 45, just look over the page there. I hope you have your Bible and you're following along with me. Psalm 45, you look at the title of that. For the choir director, according to the Shoshanim, which is uh, to the tune of uh, uh, Old MacDonald Had a Farm or something like that, some familiar song that they all knew, it was to the Shoshanim. And Maskell, the sons of the Korah, which is a teaching song, the sons of Korah. Notice it's just a song. There's no psalm here. So this is probably a vocal. It was not, no instrument. This was a cappella. But in our case, we have both the choir and the orchestra to take part in this. It's a psalm. Notice at the end it says it's a song as well. And so basically you have this uh, song and this, this great expression of praise to God in this hymn uh, by the, led by the sons of Korah. This was a, uh, uh, one of the divisions in the Levitical priesthood. These people were very gifted in instrumental music and vocal praise. They probably wrote this psalm. Uh, the little word almost means a higher pitch. So maybe uh, the, as they're singing it, all of a sudden the, the women's glee kicks in. It's the higher. This, they, they, they take over a certain part of this psalm, perhaps the women's choir. Anyway, these are some of the little notations in the superscription. And uh, let me just add that the, as far as the psalm, it readily divides itself into three stanzas. Like, a, like we're looking at a hymn, it has four stanzas. This, this hymn has three stanzas. And um, uh, the basic outline is uh, fear not, verses 1 through 3. And then verses 4 through 7, faint not. And then verses 8 through 11, fret not. So let's look at this together. Uh, stanza 1, fear not, for God is our refuge. He first of all gives us this statement of ultimate reality. This is a statement you can take it to the bank. This is something 
you can, you can ground your trust upon. Notice he starts out the psalm saying this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. When the glass is shattering and everybody's running around like they're, with their hair on fire, this is one of those snap out of it psalms. Says, Wait a minute. God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And all of us face these threatening situations. Some of our believing family here are going through some real difficult times, very scary times. But this psalm reminds us that God is our protection. He provides us with the power we need and provision for handling every troubling situation that we encounter. He gives three characteristic descriptions of God to help us in these times of trouble in this verse. First of all, he states that God is our refuge. Um, He's committed to our protection. He's committed to watch over us and care for us. The idea of refuge has to do with that... uh, that place where you run in time of trouble. Uh, it's that uh, storm shelter. We, anything that offers protection from danger. This is why Luther, he, he sees God as a mighty fortress, as a, as a great fort, if you will, against the enemies that would attack us or come against us. Uh, <clears throat> basically, the order of wording in the Scripture is always important. It's always significant. The first word or the first statement is always very important. That's the thing he's trying to emphasize here for you. And you'll notice that the first word, the emphasis is, it's God who is our refuge. Um, The emphasis here is upon who our refuge is. The actual term here for God is Elohim. It's probably the generic term for God throughout the Scripture. It's the, it's the, the Almighty One. It's the idea of God Almighty is our refuge and strength. Um, No one or nothing else can be our refuge. He he is the one that protects us. He is the the refuge that we run to uh, to find security and shelter in any kind of trouble. Isaiah 41 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. When Jesus speaks of the church, He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How come? Because God is His refuge. God is there to protect us. Then the second characteristic that's pointed out here is the fact that God is our strength. God is our refuge and strength. It's not just referring, he's not trying to point out how powerful God is in and of himself, but it's expressing that power on our behalf. The key term here is our strength. God is our refuge. He's our strength. It's that strength and refuge that's brought to bear in our personal life. He uses a little personal pronoun, our, here. It's God's power unleashed on our behalf. The almighty power of God is the ultimate source of our strength. We have no strength. God has it all. Paul could write in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Him 
who strengthens me. He, the strength comes from him. In this time of trouble, where do we look to for strength to get through it? Our refuge and strength is in God. Elohim is our refuge and strength. And then the third thing, third characteristic here is that God is our help. God is our refuge, our strength, and our help. He provides us with what we need. We should note something here that's really not often done in the Scripture is this stacking of intensifiers with each, 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 the next statement stacks on top of the previous one. It doesn't happen a lot in the Scripture, so it's, it's interesting when it does happen, he's emphasizing something for us here. He's saying he's not just our help, but he is our present help. And he's not just our present help, but he is a very present. They don't use very very often. We do it all the time. God doesn't need to use it, but he uses it here. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. This help is not something that's promised or distanced. It's immediately, readily available to us. And it speaks something of God's nearness, his readiness, his at-handedness to take care of us, whatever our need might be right now. And it, it's the idea of Jeremiah 23, 23. Am I not a, a God, am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Can anyone hide himself in the secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do not I feel heaven and earth, says the Lord. It's not a long, God's not distanced from us. He's right here. Very present hell in time of trouble. Psalm 39, 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dove, behold, in the uttermost parts of the sea, as Jonah found out, even there your hand will find me. I mean, I can't hide from him and nothing can hide me from him because God is our refuge and strength. It's interesting as a very present help in time of trouble, this word trouble is in the plural. It's not translated, it's plural, which means that whatever this situation is, this troubling situation, it's going to encompass many distresses. Whatever we encounter in life, the term literally is tight places. God is a very present help in tight places. And of course, to the... To the Hebrew reader, the writer of this, he understands uh, when Israel was delivered from Egypt, they had the the Red Sea in front of them, mountains on this side, mountains on this side, and Pharaoh's army coming. All right, Adam, there's no escape. They were in a tight place. But God was a very present help in their time of trouble, just as he is and will be for you. Notice we come to verse 2, this little expression, having just given this statement of reality, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Now he, he gives this logical and rational response to that statement. Because God is our refuge and strength. Therefore, don't you love therefore in the scripture? The psalmist loves them. Therefore, because of that, therefore, he says, we will not fear even though the earth be removed, the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling tide. 
he gives some pretty picturesque language here of the earth being moved and the mountains being carried in the midst of the sea, the waters roaring. Uh, this is um, he's describing our situation, the overwhelming trouble that we might encounter, whatever that might be. Even the most stable and reliable things known to man, like solid ground, you know, even the earth is going to be moved. Uh, you think of the mountains, those the the immovable mountains. These things that we we tend to think are, are totally reliable uh, for us as men. These things are not our refuge. These things can melt. These things can be cast in the heart of the sea, the restless, menacing sea, uh, by flood or earthquake, and all these terrible things that can happen. And basically, he's saying here, when our world is thrown into confusion and everything that I consider stable in life is shaken to pieces, I'll not be overcome by fear because my refuge is God. And then we come to the end of the first stanza, and he ends each stanza with the little Hebrew expression, Selah. Uh, this is another notational device that occurs in the Psalms. Uh, it occurs 20, uh, 73 times in, in something, about 2,000 times altogether in, in the Scripture. But here it, it, it occurs uh, uh, 73 times in the Psalter. And when you see this little expression, Selah, it just means to stop and think about what you just heard for a moment. The, the, the translation of the word is to lift up. It's like if you're playing, if Job is playing his violin and he sees this little expression on the music and says, lift up, he takes his bow off the strings. This means, hold it, pause for a minute. It's a time to retune your instruments. It's a time for the vocalist to take a drink of water or swallow or whatever, take a breath. But basically for us, the listener who are listening to these words, if you will, it's, it's a time when we're prompted to meditate or to reflect upon what we've just heard. And so each time you see the, the little word seal, you need to pause for a minute and think, what was that he just said? <laughs> Let me, what, what was that again? Let me think about that for a minute. And again, this is the idea here. Uh, uh, no matter what happens, God is our refuge, our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Stanza 2, verses 4 through 7. We're to faint not because God is our provider. And the focus of this, this section of the psalm, uh, he mentions four things that will keep us from losing heart. I mean, you know, you're in the midst of troubles and difficulties. We sometimes want to just give up and think we, we can't do this. But he gives four things here that will encourage us uh, to not faint uh, when we encounter troubles. And the first one is, in verse 4, we have unseen resources that nobody else really has. Notice it says, there's a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. I remember I used to read this and I think, 
how do we jump to a river? What, what happened there? I mean, we're talking about God, and now we jumped into the river. I don't know. Never did get that, you know. So what's this river about? It's a picture here that the psalmist is painting for us is this uh, God's river city people. That's you and I. Uh, he's bolstering our weak and deficient confidence and strength by stating right up front that we have unseen spiritual resources the world doesn't have. Um, it's interesting, again, the importance, whatever's said first, that's what he's trying to emphasize. He started out with God. In this section, he starts out, a river. There's a river. Important here. The river is mentioned first, and then the city. Uh, there, actually, in the ancient world, there were no cities without rivers. Um except Jerusalem, the city of God. Jeremiah, most of the scripture refers to the fact that God himself supplies us with that which we need, that refreshment that we need. My people committed two evils, they had forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. He's our fountain of living waters. Zechariah 13.11 speaks of, uh, in the future Israel, a fountain will be open for the house of David. In the New Testament, you have Jesus saying, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. John 14.4.14 says, Whoever drinks the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. The water that I shall give him shall become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. So first of all, the emphasis here is on a river. It's the, the river city of God. And I think, no doubt, uh, when you interpret the scripture, you have to interpret it in the light of uh, uh, authorial intent. What, what did the author understand when he wrote this? That's what it means. If you want to know what it means, it means what the author that wrote this was inspired to write this. That's what, that's what it means. What he meant, that's what it means. And I think here it means Jerusalem. And just as America is both a place and a people... This city place of Jerusalem is symbolic for the people of God, a place where God has chosen to put his name. It's his dwelling place in the earth. It's the, uh, it's the center of his attention, if you will. He focuses his attention upon this, this river city people, this, uh, this, this Jerusalem, if you will. It's interesting that uh, in Ezekiel 38.12 it says that Jerusalem is the center of the world. You open up a map. Guess what's in the center? Jerusalem. It's that interesting. It's also interesting that people to the left of Jerusalem read from left to right toward Jerusalem. And people to the right are to the east of Jerusalem read from right to left. Because it's the center of God's attention. Everything centers upon that. And he's telling us here, there's a river city of God, the dwelling place of the Most High. That's where he has focused his attention upon, if you will. So, again, of all the cities in the ancient world, Jerusalem doesn't have a river. There's no river there. It has a hidden spring underneath it. And it, it's this, it's this, it's, uh, it's this, Pool of Siloam, if you will, the spring of Gion, uh, underground system built by King Hezekiah. 
And while this city, like you and me, has no visible river flowing through it, it does have hidden resources. And we have hidden resources. Especially helpful in times of siege and distress. Uh, the city and the people are set apart as the dwelling of God Most High. El Elyon, if you will. That's an ancient name for God. Remember when Melchizedek came out and blessed Abraham, he was the priest of God Most High. That's an old name for God. God uh, who, who is above all. He transcends everything. His sovereign authority is over all. He is God Most High. Even in the New Testament, Jesus says, love your enemies, do good, lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. That's a good title for God, isn't it? He's the, he's the ultimate sovereign of the universe. So here's the city, not built on the river, no visible means of support, but our means of refreshment and support come from the fact that God is in us. He is in the midst of us. He he tabernacles with us, if you will. This is, this is a, there is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God lives in us and through us. And, and certainly He is imminently providing this gladdening refreshment from the people of God to keep us from fainting. We have unseen resources. And then secondly, the emphasis in this section in verse 5 is the fact of God dwelling with us. He is, He resides with us. God is in the midst of her and she shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. So this is another thing to keeping us from losing heart here is the fact that this river city people of God enjoy His real presence. He's with us. He dwells in our midst. He's interested in everything that we do, our thoughts, our behavior. Uh, even when enduring a long night of troubles, we'll be helped. Notice it says, uh, God is in the midst of her and she shall not be moved and God shall help her just at the break of dawn. That's an interesting expression. Just at the break of dawn. When morning comes, or right early, I think the King James says. Um, it, the word itself means... Uh, uh, when when you reach the end of night, its darkest point or its furthest distance, that's the point that God comes. That's when the Calvary begins to come down from the hills, and you think, you know, we, we've all had it. But then we hear the trumpet, and the Calvary comes racing down, and we're rescued. But that, when do they come? Just at the break of dawn. Just when you think it, it couldn't be any any longer. That's when it is. It's interesting that this psalm like most psalms, need to be understood, if you can, in any way possible, find out, what's this about? What's the history of this? What's he talking about? What's the historical background that give me some insight into what he's talking about here? And I think this, this psalm needs to be understood in its historical light of Judah's king Hezekiah and his victory over the Assyrian king Sennacherib. And uh, you're reading assignment, and I wish I could have given this to you before the sermon today, because if you'd have been way ahead of the game if you'd had a chance to read uh, <clears throat> 2 Kings 18 and 19. So write that down, that's your assignment. And don't, don't show up again unless you've read that. 2 Kings 18 and 19. 
This is where the kings of Judah and the king of, of Israel get together and they rebel against Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Well, of course, he didn't like that too much. So he comes down on Israel and they're hauled off into captivity, 722 B.C. A few years later, we're going to finish the job. We're coming down and we're going to get Jerusalem. We're going to get Judah as well. So he comes down to Judah. King Hezekiah. Good King Hezekiah. This is um, Uzziah's grandson. You remember? And this is during the era of Isaiah the prophet. Remember Isaiah? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord lifted up. King Uzziah's grandson is this Hezekiah. And now the Assyrians have come down and uh, they're, they're railing against him. Sennacherib sends his uh, chief, Rabshakeh. Actually, that's not his name. Uh, Rabshakeh is the third highest office in the land. He is the five-star general or the six-star general there. And so he sends Rabshakeh. And of course, he goes and he says, you guys, come on out, give up. You might as well give up because look at all the nations. You know, we've, we've marched down here. We've killed everybody. We've destroyed their gods. We've taken everything that... And you know, I can, I'll offer you, I'll offer you tanks and equipment. You can't, you, there's not enough men in there to take care of that. We're still going to grind you to powder. We're going to destroy you. And of course, uh, this was a frightening thing. This was a troubling situation. Uh, but, uh, one thing about this situation is that we know that God was on their side. Hezekiah called on Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah prayed to God, and God said, uh, you know, these guys aren't going to get away with this. <laughs> and of course, this is the incident where the angel went down and, and killed 185,000 of these uh, Assyrians. Uh, it, I, and of course, how many of you read the, uh, the great poem by Lord Byram, Destruction of Sennacherib? I just have to read it. It's just too good. Let me read this for you. This is your literature lesson for the day. He says, uh, The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold, and the sheen of his spears like the stars on the sea when the blue wave rose nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when the summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset was seen. Like the leaves of the forest, when autumn hath blown, that host on the morrow lay withered and strown. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. And the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill, and their hearts but once heaved and forever grew still. And there lay the steed with its nostrils all wide, but through it there rolled not the breath of his pride, and the foam of his gasping lay white on the turf, as cold as the spray of the rock-beaten surf. And there lay the rider distorted and pale, with dew on his brow and rust on his mail. And the tents were all silent, and the banners alone, the lances unlifted, the trumpets unblown, and the widows in Asher are loud in their wail, and the idols are broken, in the temple of Baal. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, has melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. 
God is in the midst of her and she shall not be moved. As you read these these verses in 2 Kings 18 and 19, you're going to see the same words pop up that are in this psalm. Very same words. This dawning, the early dawn. At dawn, the angel breathed and they, they all died. Uh, God is always on time. You know, it seems like this is, this is too late for us, but it's never too late with God. Uh, he's always in time with His presence, His help in our time of need. I love the passage in Deuteronomy 33, 26, 27. I heard this years ago from a pastor. Um, this verse says, There's no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to help you and in His excellency on the clouds. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Interesting that this word underneath I understand that in Hebrew, this just means you can't get any further down. You can't go any further down. But, once you've gotten there, guess what's under it? The everlasting arms of God. A third thing to keep us from losing heart in verse 6 says that the nations raged and the kingdoms were moved. He uttered His voice and the earth melted. So troubles, I think this section, this verse itself tells us that troubles will feel the response of our God. Uh, the psalm deals with threats from nature and nations. I think historically he's dealing with this nation of Assyria, but it would apply as well to nature, problems in our, whatever problem is in our life. Um, <clears throat> these nations of Assyria were raging, um, and this word means to, re- to speak with fury, to rail against another with violence and anger. And so here the pagan unbelieving world surrounding the river city people of God are equated here to ravenous beasts that roar with vicious behavior against us and according to this historical count, God takes all that personally. Remember when Paul was knocked off his horse and Jesus said, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? They're raging against you. God takes that very personal. I love this passage. <clears throat> Let me just turn to it. It's 2 Kings 19.27. Uh, Isaiah writes out the response of God to Hezekiah. And this is, we read this here. The word of the Lord is spoken against Assyria. And Isaiah is giving this to, to Hezekiah. And it says in verse 27, but I know you're sitting down. Actually, a better translation is, I know where you live. Listen, <laughs> here's God telling these Assyrians, listen, bud, I know where you live. And then he goes on to say, and you're going out and you're coming in and you're, what's the word? Raging against me. Same word. You're raging against me. Takes this very personal. He's, they're raging against Israel, but God takes it personal in the sense that they are actually raging against Him. Um, <clears throat> and then it says that, the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. 
He uttered his voice and the earth melted. The word of the Lord came and that was it. That ended that. This is the idea of God. The same God that spoke heaven and earth into existence is the God that can speak and take care of any problem that we have. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. And again, those things which most of us think are invincible, like the ground under your feet, are under his control. They obey His Word. Whatever He says takes effect. Then the final resource given to help us from losing heart here in verse 7, He says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Now this is the refrain. There will be you know, like the chorus in the song. This is the refrain. He's going to come back to it again. Uh, <clears throat> basically, this... Uh, this He's telling us here that the Lord of hosts is with us. It says that we know something that other people don't know. Why are we different from everybody else? Well, we know something they don't know. Actually, we know someone they don't know. And that's the interesting part. It's the home here. It's the, like Paul would say, if God is for us, who then can be against us? In Romans 8.31. And in this, uh, in this refrain, he gives three titles or designations for God found in the scripture that are help, help, help us stabilize us in trouble. And of course, it's interesting, when you ask someone who they are, the first thing they'll give you is their name. Who are you? Well, I'm so-and-so. Names are important methods of self-revelation. Your name says who you are. Uh, It sets you apart from everyone else. It's essentially unique. In the Scripture, a person's name normally indicated something of their basic character, their identity, if you will. Um, And and the same is true of God. Names and titles of God, of course, are not the creation of men. I I think I'll come up with a new name for God. These names for God are not human creations. God God has revealed these descriptions of of who He is, His essence and nature. Uh, Adam was told to name all the animals, but he was not told to name God. That was was way past his pay grade. Uh, God can be described, but He cannot be defined. He can be revealed, but not fully understood. And only God can define God. So when Moses comes to God and says, you're going to deliver these people, they're going to ask me, what's his name? I I don't even know what to tell them. What's your name? God said, I am am who I am. Only God can reveal who he is. He is the eternal I am, the eternal self-existent one. God's name in a comprehensive sense is his, who, everything that he is. Uh, it's interesting, even in the New Testament, in Matthew 13, in 16, I think it is, Jesus says, so, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're this, some say you're that. He said, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who you are. And knowing that defines you, sets you apart from everybody else. You know something nobody else knows. You know who God is. And this is what he's saying here. And this refrain is, he gives these three designations for God. 
the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. This Lord of hosts is a statement by Luther, Lord Sabaoth. I think I got that wrong. Lord Sabaoth. Sorry about that. Oh, guys, what can you do? <laughs> can't see, can't hear, can't walk. Okay. <laughs> can't put on a mic, right? But anyway. Uh, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord God Almighty. Uh, this is God as the divine ruler of the universe. He is in control of every situation you could ever encounter. He is the commander of the armies of heaven and earth, if you will. The one having infinite resources and power, manpower and material and whatever at his disposal. This is where Luther will say the right man on our side is Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. He is with us. Uh, remember when David came against Goliath, you come against me with sword and spear, I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. That's the name that David used when he faced Goliath. And this is a name we use when we face our trouble. The Lord of hosts is with you. It's interesting, this the implied here, it's not really actually stated, with you is God with us. In the New Testament, it comes out Emmanuel, if you will. The stress is upon the, the abiding presence of God. That He's with us. Whatever our trouble might be, guess who's there with us? Who is with us in that trouble? God is with us. Jesus came and tabernacled among us. He became one with us. The Holy Spirit indwells us and will never leave us or forsake us. So we have God's presence with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. He is our Emmanuel. And then he adds, the God of Jacob is our refuge. This third title is really interesting. It reminds us as to what kind of God that he really is. It says in Psalm 76, 6, At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse were cast into a dead sleep. You wonder, how come he didn't say the God of Abraham? He didn't say that. What does he say? The God of Jacob. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Why Jacob? Well, I'll tell you. I'm glad you asked. The God of Jacob, Jacob is that self-reliant, heel-grabbing finagler who always disappoints us. And this is telling us that God is the gracious God of Jacob, the patron saint of unworthy sinners. Aren't you glad? (laughs) He's the patron saint of us unworthy sinners. He's the God of Jacob, of all things. He's my God, of all things. Imagine that. And that's why he says, Selah. Think about that for a minute. Selah. The final stanza here, fret not, but reflect upon his works. Verses 8 through 11. 
reminds us that we're not to fear because God is our refuge and strength, and we're not to faint because He is our uh, invisible abiding resource of uh, support and help and means of refreshment in time of trouble. Here we're told not to fret, uh, but consider who He is and what He has done and respond accordingly. Notice that verse 8 begins with, Come and behold the works of the Lord who's made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in fire. That had been real helpful to Hezekiah and his men. <laughs> They're never thinking about it. This is, this is exactly right, what we need. This first admonition in this stanza is to stop for a minute, consider who it is we're being asked to come to and to trust in. Don't you love it when Jesus says, Come unto me. Oh, you that labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come to me. You, you, you ask me, do I think I'm going to heaven when I die? Absolutely. Because Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I would have told you. It's His Word. This is the one we're coming to. Come Behold the works of the Lord. Basically, he wants us to come and think about what God has done and study his word. We tend to trust people that we know. You know, the bank won't loan you any money until they know everything about you. You won't trust God if you don't know about him. So this is a, we need to know who he is. And the psalmist is telling us to come and see the doings of Jehovah. In fact, uh, Spurgeon says, we were given eyes for this very purpose. Come behold the works of the Lord. Why do you even have eyeballs? So I can behold the works of the Lord. Once we do that, we're going to see the reasonable, the sweet reasonableness of trusting Him. Once we, we know something that others don't know, we know who God is because He's revealed Himself in His Word. And I guess if I didn't say anything else today, I need to just tell you this. You need to get in the Word. You need to get in His Word. We need to come and behold the works of the Lord. That's what we need to do. We need to get into the Word. The more we understand the past, present, and future dealings of God, the more we'll trust Him. What shall we say to these things, Paul says? If God is for us, who can be against us? So we're to behold what He's done. And then we're also to be still and to understand. Cease striving, it says in verse 10, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Uh, besides coming to know, this second admonition involves becoming submissive and quiet before the Lord. Uh, and this is something that's opposed to all of our instincts, to being still. Uh, we're, we tend to be restless in times of trouble. We get to fretting, and what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? Where are we going to get the, get the door open so we can get out of here, get out of this trouble, and find some safety? Psalm 37 talks about don't fret yourself because of evildoers, uh, neither be envious against the workers of iniquity. Verse 7 Rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him, fret not thyself because of him who prospers in the way. Verse 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. 
This idea of fretting means to gnaw or to irritate, chafing anxiety. You know, we worry about something. Just we fret over this stuff, don't we? This is, we're not to do that. We're to we're to be still. Stop that fretting. It's notice who's doing the fretting. Who's doing the fretting here? I'm doing it. I'm the one that's eating me up. I'm the fretter here. Not the fritter, the fretter. Our every impulse in time of trouble is to jump on a horse and ride off screaming in all directions, but here we're told to be still and to wait upon the Lord. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and shall mount up with wings of eagles. Be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication, thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts from fretting. Not to be anxious about anything. So in time of trouble, we need to acknowledge the divinity of God. Be still and know that I am God. Isn't that who he is? That's what he does. I mean, that's his job description. That's who he is. Be still and know that I am God. And humbly submit to his sovereign will. You remember when Elijah called the fire down in the temple and the prophets of Baal there? And he called, I mean... He knew who God was before the fire fell, didn't he? They didn't. They're all screaming, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Well, we need to acknowledge the Lord, he is God. Like Elijah, like like we should as the people of God because we've come to behold who he is and what he's done. This issue in time of trouble is not who does he think I am, but who do I understand him to be? It's really a dreadful thing to quarrel with God, voicing our petty murmurings, railing against things that are beyond our control. We need to rest in the settled assurance of knowing that God is God and he's in control. Back to the historic incident of Hezekiah. It says in 2 Kings 19.14, and Hezekiah, they wrote this horrible letter to, to the king. And you read this back and forth with Rabshakeh and Hezekiah, he just calls Hezekiah, Hezekiah. He calls the king of Assyria, the mighty king, the great exalted king, king, lord, king, his majesty. He calls Hezekiah, bub. He has you know, no respect at all for Hezekiah. And he writes this letter. I can't hang around. Just send him this letter. So Hezekiah got this letter about what they're going to We're going to cream you. We're going to destroy you. We're going to kill everybody, everybody there. Notice what he does about it. Verse, 19, verse 14 of 2 Kings 19. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Here he is in, in the temple of God. He's got this letter and he says, God, do you see this? <laughs> you see what this guy wrote about you and your people here? You see this? So he, came, he did the right thing, didn't he? And prayer, again, is not telling God what our problems are, but, but telling our problems who our God is, uh, knowing that he's going to be exalted in the earth. So we need to take it to him. And then uh, the final refrain here, uh, the psalm begins and ends with the fact that God is our refuge. It says in verse 11, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Again, he mentions the three designations of God. The Lord of hosts, he's the one that's with us. Uh, we need that we're, we know that we're not alone. The Lord is our sufficiency, who's with us. 
And we stand because he is the God of Jacob. The self-reliant, heel-grabbing finagler always disappoints. The patron saint of sinners, unworthy sinners, just like you and me. It's the God of Jacob that we comes to as our as the Lord of hosts, our refuge, if you will. It's interesting that uh, John Wesley's final words before he died, God is our refuge and strength. Very present help. Time of trouble. I hope that, uh, that you'll use this psalm in your own life, a, psalm, a song of faith in troubling times. And again, this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Nobody's exempt from troubles. We're all going to die if Jesus doesn't come. I mean, that's the fact of life. We're all sinners. We're all going to die. But whatever trouble we're in, we're not in it by ourselves. The Lord of hosts is with us. God of Jacob is our refuge. I hope this becomes your go-to source of undergoing troubles. It helps us to abandon human attempts at self-sufficiency. It trust in the Lord as our refuge in time of trouble. It tells us to be still, to trustingly turn to the Lord, to positively respond to His will, to reflect on His ability, place all our expectation on Him. As Peter will say in 1 Peter 5, 7, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So how should I respond to this hymn? Well, how about a therefore? (laughs) Therefore, because God is my refuge, I will not fear. Therefore, because God is my river, I will not faint. Therefore, because God is my revelation. I will not fret. Let's run the race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been the help of your people in ages past. You have been our hope for years to come. And now we pray that you would be our helper and those especially that are going through the stormy blast of troubles and that they would be assured that our eternal home is settled with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.